And I'm gonna publicly admit that I would have to put on my girdle and my big jogging pants and go steal food for my children because I was blacklisted in Southern California because I couldn't work. It was, I never had a reputation for not having beautiful costumes and clothes or being great on the show and new music. I just had a bunch of jealous people that were in charge that could not take that. I was not going to accept you talking to me any kind of way. And I don't care who you think you are. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Broke, blacklisted, and betrayed by other jealous comedians, Flame Monroe was left struggling to provide for herself and her family. But that was then. Now, more than a decade later, Flame is back in the spotlight, appearing on HBO's Deaf Comedy Jam and the Emmy-nominated Netflix series, Tiffany Haddish presents They Ready. As her story above hints, life as a stand-up comedian was not always sunshine and roses. Breaking into the 90s comedy circuit is hard enough, but doing it as a black trans woman seems near impossible. But Flame's, wi- but Flame's willingness to consistently show up, be funny, and love herself unabashedly built a bridge of compassion between her and her audience. Looking back at the comedy scene that often refused to accept her, Flame sees there's still a lot of room for change in the era of cancel culture and explosive Twitter threads. Yet, she also has forged an incredible path for future comedians, teaching audiences to love her as she learned to love herself at 12 years old. I'm here with Flame Monroe. Growing up in Chicago in the 1980s, Flame did not anticipate a career as a comedian. Um, She experienced bullying for both gender and sexual identity early age, but eventually is expressing herself now in full drag, gaining a sense of community. I feel like you introduce yourself as a comedian who happens to be trans, which I think is a, um, a pretty, it seems like an intentional introduction. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. Well, the reason I took that on that way and make that very important to me, because when they used to say transgender comedian, Flame Monroe, you never heard nothing past transgender. It never went past transgender. So then I had to be labeled and been put in a box. And I've never wanted to be a comedian that worked with only gay people or white people or black people or fat people. I wanted to be able to work in any arena. So I made sure that I made that important to me because a lot of times they just say, oh, it's a gay comedian. So then it's the whole show gay, the whole show transgender. No, how about we just comedians? I just happen to be transgender. So I make that distinction and I make people introduce me that in that way. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, it seems like something that's been really important in your story is being able to like just compete with the best, no matter like who or what they are. How are you so like, I guess, like, I mean, kind of going back, like, how are you so initially confident um, to represent a like really, really like a, you know, a personality and uh, a, uh, a way of presenting yourself that like was not accepted by the world? Oh, I had a, I had a um, time experience and I had a great I had a, my grandmother was. Blackfeet Indian and a black woman and cold-blooded like you wouldn't believe. Just instill confidence. Not just confidence, just this is who you are. This is who you were made to be. Don't start changing this and changing that because you're never going to find it. So she always preached your happiness is in that mirror. Go look in that mirror. When, she, when you were angry, when I would be angry about something, she said, go look in the mirror and see what your other self said to that self. It sounds crazy, but it worked. 
And what did you see when you were like looking in that mirror? Like what were the, the traits that you really wanted to embody? Brilliance. I knew I was a brilliant bitch since I was 12. <laughs> did before. And then how did you actually get into to drag too? Like, like what was the, the initial uh, impetus? As a, it was Halloween, I was like like so many other queens was born on Halloween. We did, I did it one time. Let me just do it one time and see what it's like. I couldn't get out of it. We got stuck. What was the what was the costume or what was what, what were you wearing? I had the cheapest sequins money could buy, but it was the old industrial sequins, so it was real shiny, but it was real warm. And it was just a green two dress I had borrowed from Chili Pepper in Chicago with these spaghetti straps. And I had this big old piece of black hair on. I thought I was Diana Ross personified. And the, the long evening gloves, it was just, and you know who put my makeup on me the very first time? My biological mother, Miss Valerie. My mother put my really? makeup on. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? Looking back on it now, it was great. But at the time, it was kind of weird because she really didn't want me to be gay. Damn sure didn't want me to be a trans person or dressing up in drag. And um, I don't know, but she, she just, she saw me in the bathroom struggling. She came in and put this disco blue eyeshadow on me. It was terrible. But uh, my mother had to come to a point in her life where do I, do I love my child more than I hate what my child has become? And she realized that she loved her child way more than what I had become. I never disrespected my mother. When I wasn't happy where I was, I changed my surroundings and I went and moved and lived with somebody else. You, you were 15 when you left home? Oh baby, if I'm not happy, I will leave. Where did you go? I went to stay with another woman. Uh, her name was Mrs. Mandy B. Wade. May she rest in peace, look at all my people did. She was just the nicest old lady. She used to be our neighbor, and she was a wonderful person. She took great care of me. She made sure I finished high school. She did. Well, I was just uh, very flamboyant. I wasn't dressing up in drag. I would wear a girl sweater sometimes or girl shoes, but not heels, like flats. Because I was in high school, and I was in the marching band. And um, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to entertain, but I couldn't sing. I wasn't no great dancer. And I, I'm, I figured I'd find it one day. And lo and behold, I dressed up on Halloween and started doing drag shows, and I found it. Was the drag show on Halloween? Uh, well, they had like an amateur show on Halloween. I didn't perform on that one, but I watched. I just watched yeah. because I was terrified. And there was a club that I started out in Chicago called the Baton Show Lounge. It's been going on for 50-plus years. And the owner, Jim Flint, was a tyrant, but he had an eye of picking out the most phenomenal girls he could see things in you that you didn't even know so he hired me I, my first show i ever did i did uh from the original soundtrack dream girls move you're stepping on my heart by jennifer holiday and uh and then i did went to the black club which was club Laray, which was where i just turned into a flower and, and flourished uh i did tina marie you make love like springtime. Oh my God, I thought I was the last white woman. I wore my blonde hair and everything. That's where I met Tasha Thomas at, who I watched, who was so quick-witted on the mic, so funny, and such a great entertainer. Just a good person all the way around, and could cut up, oh my God. And I, I didn't even realize I was studying her, but I was studying her and didn't know it. She was fantastic. I, I don't know if I'll ever be as good as she was, but I, I try. Can we start uh, a little earlier about how you started doing stand-up comedy as a fluke? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my muse, again, Tasha Thomas, may she rest in peace, was fighting with another girl, another friend of mine named Casey, may she rest in peace. AIDS took a lot. AIDS in the 80s took a lot of my friends. Uh, and and so they suspended them both that night. So they came in the dressing room and we all in the dressing room. It was maybe seven or eight of us. And none of us, we in the cut dressing room cutting up. None of us was ready for no microphone. And so dressing the guy room named for what? 
getting dressed for drag. We were getting dressed for the drag show. And what does a drag show even like look like or sound like? Uh, oh, my God. We had the best ones back in the day, 80s and 90s. It was just the dressing room, the green room where we get ready together is where we had the best camaraderie. So we got we got each other ready for the five or six minutes that you guys get to see us. But the you, the dressing room is where all the drama and all the fun and all the love and joy actually happens. And so Mark, who was the manager at the time, may he rest in peace also, Aladdin guy, came in the back and he said, I need a host for tonight. So we all looking around each other like, I mean, nobody want to get on the microphone. He says, Flame, you do it. Because I hear you back here talking shit all the time. I says, I don't want to get on the microphone. That's not what I do. And he was like, no, I want you to do it. So I was like, no, I'm not doing it. So he's like, I'll give you an extra 50 bucks. I said, okay. <laughs> so I went out there and I was absolutely terrible. I was terrible. Uh, he said, okay, I want you to come back next week. I want you to try it again. I said, I don't want to do that. I just want to be on the show. Did it the next week. I was worse the second week than I was the first week. How did you know you were so bad? I just felt, I, I, it just nothing, I didn't know how to you know, tell jokes. And I wasn't comfortable on stage with people listening to what I had to say. So that he said, I'm going to give you one more try. I'm telling you, sometimes people see things in you that you never know. And he said, I'm going to give you one more try. I said, I don't want to do it. I begged him not to let me do it. He said, so I went up there and somebody heckled me from the audience. That quick heckled you? What did they in. say? I don't remember. That was 30 years ago. They said, whatever they said. I multiplied, divided, added, and subtracted that ass. They won't never say it again. And the audience went crazy. And then I realized, oh, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And then I just became a comedian. And then we went to a comedy club about a year later, just hanging out, me and some friends. And they were cutting up. So my friends said, Flame, go up there. Go. I said, I'm not going up there. And this was a, all jokes aside, which was one of the greatest comedy clubs ever in Chicago. And... Um, the, uh, the host at the time, Damon Williams, saw me. And I was never a passable trans woman. I mean, I had a beautiful body, delicious body, but you knew. And uh, he started joining me from the audience, and I, I just went back and forth. We went back and forth. I tore his ass up. He, asked, he invited me to come on stage, so I went on stage. And uh, I had on pants and like a teddy. You could see through my teddy, see my boobs and everything. He was like, I know, I know you're not a woman, but those titties look real good. If it wasn't nobody looking, I said, don't, don't run up on me, play. And I lifted my pants leg up because at the time I was on house arrest. And oh my God, the whole place went crazy. I never stopped doing comedy since then. <laughs> what did you like about that experience? Like, 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 was there something about being on stage, interacting with the crowd? Like, like what was like intoxicating about it? Well, working with a working in a straight arena, working in a heterosexual arena, doing stand up, I've always had the value of the shock value. I've always had the the, the plus of the shock value, and I've I learned in that dynamic and in that arena that people accept people that are different from them if you allow it to slide in slowly and organically. But if you jump on it and say, "I'm here, I'm queer, get used to it," and all that. People don't want to receive that because you're not giving me a choice and you're not giving me time to intake. It's not that people hate gay people or trans people or any other. It's just that they don't understand. So you need somebody to be able to just slowly move their way in and infiltrate till you make them understand that you, you, what you think is ignorant or wrong, you just don't understand. Let me explain it to you. And people receive you better. But uh, this new generation ain't like that. And well, well, I actually will. We'll, we'll touch on that in a little bit. But I, I, I guess I want to know, like, like, what were some of those experiences of, like, do, uh, like, are there any, I guess, experiences that jump out to you where 
you had to deal with like you know this this heterosexual crowd crowd that that wasn't oh my god as forgiving every time or, every time yeah all the time but but I'm from the west side of Chicago and that's not to say that I'm the baddest but I'm I'm damn sure not afraid and I've I've actually been accosted on stage before. It did not go down like Will Smith and Chris Rock because I am not that girl or that boy. But, I mean, I've had altercations in that way. You know, things just happen. And I've had horrible situations from a bunch of male comedians back in the day. But when they realized they weren't chasing me out the game and this is who I was and what I wanted to do, the respect is unbelievable now. The love is unbelievable. Like, I waited my time. I waited my turn. I didn't force my way in. I allowed it to happen. And I kept showing up being funny. As long as you show up and being funny, I think it pushes... It negates anything else that you present, and I kept showing up being funny. Could you tell me about um, one of your performances in like Uptown Atlanta? Um, because like it, it seemed like there that 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 specific show had like it was like a pretty tough crowd, and then you ended oh up meeting God. some important people. But um, yeah, could you could you tell me about that? Yeah, so that was well, I think that was 2011, maybe something like that. And uh, I, Uptown was notorious for late night shows they would do three on Saturday the third show was a killer but Sunday night was the ghetto and that particular show that which is on YouTube and I had the see-through blue dress on oh I want that body back too um but that particular night was the ghetto strip club drug dealers gang bangers paradise night so they would all come and come and so I watched them boo two A-list comedians off the stage before I got on, whose names I will not mention. I was there. They know. Really? Booed off the stage? Boo, boo, and, and we throw bottles. And it, oh, it was like that. So the, wow. the manager at the time, his name was Hank. He was the nicest guy. He came in the back and he said, Splain, they real rowdy. I don't know if they're going to be ready for you. I'm going to still pay you your full pay, but you ain't got to go on if you don't want to. I said, give me a few minutes to think about it. Let me have a dressing room to myself. He left the green room. I was in there. I looked myself in the mirror. I said, well, bitch, you said you want to be a comedian. This is the arena you want to work in. Are you going to sink or swim? I grabbed myself by the balls and lifted up my tits and said, let's do it. And you you saw it. You saw it. And they loved me. And they didn't love me because I went out there and attacked them. I always attack me first and make you so comfortable that I'm comfortable being me that it makes you comfortable around people like me or me. So that, that, but that night they loved me. I was booked there all the time. Wow. Wow. Did that like, was that, did that feel like a, like a turning point for you in any way? Not in my career, but it made me know that I had the confidence to stand next to and up with any comedian that you put in front of me. That's what it did for me. Yeah. I, I, I also want to hear about, um, I guess maybe another experience where uh, there was a little bit of a physical altercation of where you were doing some stand-up. When? When I told you I was accosted on stage? Yeah. Oh, that was brand new in my career. That was just some knucklehead. He will never accost anyone else again. Yeah, what, what, what happened there? Uh, he will never accost anyone else again. That's all you need to know. And when I okay. say that, I mean that he will never accost anyone else again. You pick that story apart the way you want to. Okay, noted, noted. Um, so where where did you uh, first meet Tiffany Haddish? I met Tiffany Haddish here in L.A. Um, at the Comedy Union Comedy Club on Pico and La Brea. God, I missed that spot. COVID took so many great spots. And she was young. I was younger. And... Um, 
she came and she said she was so innocent and so cute and she said excuse me can i ask you a question i said yes ma'am she said are you a drag queen i said sometimes but she didn't know that i was a comedian so then they called my name i went up and blazed the room and we talked and talked and we just i don't know we just had a natural bond it was very organic it wasn't forced tiffany was it's just a sweet person for real and so when i did botch the tv show botch because my left titty was gang banging it had encapsulated i didn't even know and i met one of the producers when i worked at a club here in long beach which name i will not say of that club anywho so we were just talking and passing. People always talk to me like I have this friendly face. I always think I'm mean mugging. And he was like, you want to get anything repaired? I'm a producer at Botched. And I was like, yeah, whatever. Because, you know, everybody out here pretend to be something they're not, including yeah. me. Uh, <laughs> and I gave him my email. And a couple of weeks later, I got an email. And they invited me back. And Dr. Debro and Dr. Nasser was cool as a fan. But that Dr. Debro is the nicest and funniest character you will ever want to be in your life. He was so cool. He fixed my boobs. It was a great experience. So when I had to do the big reveal, I asked Tiffany to introduce me. And this was really? pre-Girls Trip. Yeah, it hadn't even, Girls Trip hadn't even come out yet. So Tiffany was not the star star that she is. Mm-hmm. And she did. And I told the producers, y'all need to watch this girl. She's going to be a star. Tiffany uh, introduced me and told me that night, she said, Slam, I think you're a star. If I make it, I'm coming back to get you. And she did. She surely really? did. Yeah. What, does that, what does that mean to you, like coming back to get you? That meant that once Tiffany pulled back the blanket off of me, it allowed everybody else to say, Flame, we finally see you. That's how I felt in the comedian world, that they finally, they knew who I was, they knew of me, they had worked with me. But when Tiffany allowed me to be on They Ready and we got Emmy nominated for my episode, thank you very much, it just allowed all the other comedians and the world to just see me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd love to talk talk about um, how that, even came about so uh maybe if you could like lead me up because uh that happened in 2019 so 2017 is when like tiffany has uh like one of her breakout roles so maybe like track me up like how your career is going how hers is and how you guys reconnect eventually oh we never lost contact my number hasn't changed ever in 20 years because i have children but um my career was dead. My career was, I was ostracized by the LGBT community here in Southern California, so I couldn't work. I was blacklisted from one club, and they put the fields out for all the other clubs to blacklist me. And not How did that happen? The LGBT community is full of racism, ageism, and hate. Let me just say that out loud and publicly, because I ain't afraid of nothing but God. Uh, but the only queen, and let me say this very publicly, Morgan McMichaels, from Southern California, who's on RuPaul's, who's a, one of the fan favorites on RuPaul's Drag Race, broke the line and said, she's talented, I like her, and the people love her, and always booked me. So I always hold Morgan McMichaels in high regard for that. But it was a lot of hate and racism out here, so I couldn't work, and I had three kids. How did it start, though? Just because I was so talented, and they were not. It really is not safe for trans entertainers trans female entertainers here in Southern California because they just don't give them a fair shake. So Neek is from here. She's a white girl, beautiful body. She won RuPaul's All-Stars, but they gave her a hard time because she was trans. It is, the inclusion is definitely not in the LGBTQIA plus community. It's not within us. But, uh, so they did that. And Morgan always booked me, so I kept working. And then Tiffany told me a year before, get your set ready, get your set ready. I got something for you. And so I was like, okay, okay. And it, it took about a year, honestly. And about three months in, that she started calling regularly. So I knew it was real. And um, so we thought the pay was going to be like $35,000. Mm-hmm. 
and I was like, oh, it could have been two hundred. It could have been two hundred dollars for me at that time, but it was it was very good. It was exceptional pay. We were paid well over six figures, and were treated wow. like, and were treated like royalty by Netflix and Tiffany Haddish and Pusha Productions, which include Wanda Sykes and Paige Horry. So I want to uh, double click on on just the the show. So how do you think about putting together your set? What do you want to like, how are you thinking about what you want to talk about and how are you thinking about this, this opportunity? Do you know what was important to me was to make sure that I did a great job because it was Tiffany's first baby that she produced. So it was very important to, for me to impress Tiffany because so many celebrities that I know, none of them ever came back for me. None of them ever gave me opportunities like this. So I knew I had to soar because it was Tiffany and that I was different and that, you know, she put me on a show of all women, you know? So I was like, oh, you got to go out here and do that. And it really did do great. And when my episode got nominated for the Emmy, it was I was blown out the water. But that's how you get, you just put in your mind that, I never put in my mind, this was going to be it, this was going to be it. I just put in my mind, you know what, bitch, go have a great time. Uh, thank Tiffany for this great amount of money and, and turn it out. And I turned it out. <laughs> Better than I even thought. Yeah. How did you start to realize that this was like, good what made me know that it was something was when the breakfast club called me to invite me to the breakfast club because they had never had nobody like me on there as a comedian most trans people that go in there argue about pronouns and sexuality and identity i was coming on there as an entertainer and they loved me and hired me for iheart the first week the first time i ever did it wow. so i knew then like oh yeah playing they see you they listen to you they hear your rhetoric go so i just pushed set and went and then the damn pandemic hit yeah, what was that like for you? Because it's like you're just you're just having your your career take off again. You have this Netflix special, you get invited on all the right shows, and then COVID. Yeah, uh, luckily iHeart had already hired me and paid me lovely. I still had a bunch of money from because I didn't need anything. We we moved to a beautiful house and I didn't need anything, so I I never have high demands. It's my children who need every damn thing. Good God, please help me. And um, I was really good at saving my money after being blacklisted and ostracized and not having any money. We had days to where, and I'm going to publicly admit that I would have to put on my girdle and my big jogging pants and go steal food for my children because I was blacklisted in Southern California because I couldn't work. It was, I never had a reputation for not having beautiful costumes and clothes or being great on the show and new music. I just had a bunch of jealous people that were in charge that could not take that. I was not going to accept you talking to me any kind of way. And I don't care who you think you are. How did that feel to like, I guess like ha have to do that. It is the old adage that my grandmother always told me. I will. There's two things that you will never forget about a person. You will never forget a person's face and you will never forget the way somebody made you feel. And I remember how they made me feel. And I was determined in my life to never allow anyone else to ever make me feel that low, that I had to hustle for 50 shitty dollars and take all your BS because you was jealous because I was making $1,000 worth of tips in two hours. Step your game up. Don't try to pull a man down. Yeah. And so with, I guess, like COVID, you're kind of experiencing that again. And how did you push through it? Oh, I'm an avid worker. Like I told you, I just work just come. Like I told you, I just did this uh, audio book, which was great pay. But hard work, let me say that was the hardest work. That was the hardest work I've had to do in a long time. And I've sold out five shows at Carolines, but that was the hardest damn work. Good God. 
But it was so rewarding. And when the book comes out, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. Uh, the, the author, James Hanaham, Hanaham, uh, has been on the New York bestsellers, New York bestsellers list once or twice. Uh, the story is phenomenal. It's a roller coaster of emotions. And uh, the, the book is called Don't Nobody Give a Shit About Carlotta. It's a great read. And I hope, and I was so nervous because I was like, my voice ain't no, no audio voice. <laughs> But when I listened to the playback, I was like, okay, now, Flame One Road, you got another click under your belt. I got a new experience. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I think, like, you could really expand to any place in media that you want if you just have, like, that that factor. If you're engaging, you can be engaging anywhere. Um, and I, I also like you to maybe uh, dive into something that happened during COVID or, or in, in 2021 because you were um, – uh, you you had responded to the Dave Chappelle special, the closer, and I feel like that was like a another potential blacklist moment too, because the the community was like the the trans community was very against that um, that special, um, and so what, yeah, what what were your thoughts? And so. So as a comedian, and I've watched a lot, and I'm not going to even say, and I'm going to say this, David's never, David's not my favorite male comedian. He is not. But when I, when I listen to his special, and I've watched all his specials, because I still do love me some David, and um, when he talked about Sticks and Stones, if you want to say maybe he had a little homophobia or a little transphobia back then, I may even say I can agree with that. But by the time he hit the closer, which was four specials later, I heard a man who had evolved, who had learned and listened. He said he met a young trans woman, Daphne, his friend, my friend. He considered her his friend. She was Caucasian. He said she wanted to be a stand-up comedian. He said she was lousy at it. She was terrible. But he gave her the opportunity to open for him. That is a great opportunity, first of all, for anyone, gay, straight, black, white, trans, whatever. But then that you know you loud, that he told her she, that she wasn't good and he still gave her opportunities. But he said when he sat in the green room and he talked to her and they talked to each other and not at each other, he realized that everybody is just human. You got a different story from man, you got a different presentation from man, but I hear you. So when Dave considered her his friend, that's what I heard. I heard that Daphne had, may she rest in peace, had bridged the gap to show that people can understand people if you take the time to talk to people. That's what I heard. All them, all what they heard, I didn't hear what they heard. That he said some. So if you say the word tranny, you get in the goddamn. Everybody got in uproar any damn way. And I use tranny all the time. But um, I just needed to speak up because first of all, I'm black. That's my first. I'm first. I'm black first. Then I'm a comedian. Then I'm transgender. So I felt like I had three dogs in the fight. I needed to speak up. And it wasn't that I spoke up to just have support for Dave. I was supporting the black in me. I was supporting the transgender in me. And I heard that he knew he met somebody that he would meet in his everyday life that he considered a friend. Do you know how important those words were coming out of somebody's mouth who's did sticks and stones, who act like they didn't even like trannies? But now you have met somebody that made you let me know. I understand. I, I see a person, a human. It was a great evolving position. I thought I'd give Dave an A-plus in that class because he took the time and the patience and the understanding to meet somebody where they were and make them his friend. That was great to me. So, yes, I had to speak up, and I did get back. I, was, I didn't worry about getting canceled at that point. I was the hottest ticket on the market at that point. 
they may he rest in peace paul mooney told me before he left this earth he says i don't care who you work with bitch they gonna always remember the sissy in the dress and i took them words to heart <laughs> what do you think uh most people misunderstand like because like you were you you were saying that like that dave Chappelle had had misunderstood and then he went through this like um uh, this growth period so like what like what do you think most people misunderstand well if you it's what you don't know like i just told you if i would have came in a comedy club and, and i was always dressed as a woman and bomb, bombarded my way in or oh, i'm here this is what it is and i allow people to take their time to meet me where i'm at i'm not coming to you you will always come to me always and i think that you know they say i said well we ain't forcing we ain't for and it's not forcing but when people don't understand, if they don't want to understand, you can't get upset because they don't want to understand. They just don't want to understand. And sometimes they don't. That don't mean they hate you. That don't mean they want to see you starve. That don't mean they want to see you homeless. It's just that they don't understand and it may not be for them. And that is okay. Because to me, that's better for you to know that you're not my lifestyle. You're not my, the person I want to be around. So I'm going to stay over here and you stay over there. Enjoy your house. Enjoy your life. And I'm going to enjoy mine. But our own community, like I told you, ostracize each other, cope, cancel each other, blacklist each other. Yeah, why do you think that that is? Like, like, angry. why is there so much angry. animosity? Angry, frustration, unhappiness, don't know joy, don't so busy worried about watching somebody else's plate that the food on their plate getting cold. Hmm. Is it just because like the, they they feel like ostracized? Um, no. And, I, I, like, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. You know why I wouldn't say that? Because I work in both communities. I still work with a bunch. I do a lot of stuff with AHF. I do a lot of work in the community. The heterosexual community is ready to come to the tables with their hands flat, listen to the, the gripes and the issues, change the laws and the bylaws, started with Obama. But the gay community keeps sending the wrong. It's not that some of them are not ready, but they keep sending the wrong representatives to the table. If you send somebody that's angry and disgruntled, mad, frustrated already, you will never hear what the other person is saying. We have some fair people in the LGBTQIA plus community. They just don't they just don't have the platform or the capacity to speak at the big wigs table. Hmm. So who do you think should represent? I, I have no idea. I know I don't want to. <laughs> That's not uh, that important to me. I don't want to. I do think that I will help children because younger trans because I will have them see themselves. You have to like your genitalia. You have to like who you are before you transition. Because if you don't like who you are before you transition, you're going to hate who you transition into. You've got to embrace all the facets of who you are. That's all I push is acceptance. That's, all, that's it. You accept you first. Everybody else will come around. You, you you spoke a little bit about like how you feel about cancel culture. Could you could you tell me a little bit about how you how you view where um, I guess like the the online uh, talking and and uh, communication is today with cancel culture? Uh, just a bunch of lazy bullies that's sitting there listening to Google, and Google is a liar. So that's all the cancel culture is. Because if they was back from my era where you had to go to different dis different libraries and research encyclopedias and take the time to put some stuff together it, it probably would just dissipate but now you could just go to google and google can tell you that your eyes are green and your heritage is irish and you black as tar absolutely not so i think they're just lazy and uh i, I thank netflix and dave Chappelle 
for standing up against the cancel culture and shutting them down. I think that was the beginning of the end of the cancel culture. I do. Yeah. Um, and I, and I think like it, I, I, I think where cancel culture like can go wrong a lot of times is, um, it's, it's like, it, it can be really intolerant and it could actually like, uh, it, 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 I think it doesn't actually encourage people to grow. It encourages like you, you mess up once and then you're done. Um, and there's, and even when you were mentioning Dave Chappelle, it's like, okay, like he was maybe transphobic initially, like four, four specials ago, but now like you've seen this growth as a person and like there can be learning, there can be like places where we can, or like points where we can learn. Um, but the learning shouldn't stop there. Right. Cause like if you cancel someone, then the learning stops there. It should be like, okay, here's a teaching point, carry that to your next your 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 work after that yeah, um, and yeah i feel like that seems like the uh uh the best philosophy moving forward and so in terms of the the work that you're 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 doing now and in, in terms of like podcasts and uh uh you're going to australia like like what are you uh what are you most excited for for the future um you know what i, I i'm hoping that i and I always say this, that I don't want to be the spokesperson for the LGBTQIA plus community, but I do know that I do have a level of responsibility. And I would like to be the liaison to pull us together so it would not be no more us and them. It'll just be us. I'm hoping that my voice, and my voice ain't going to be the voice of reason because I get a lot of opposition from my own community, from my own trans sisters. But for the 10 or 12 that's disgruntled, I get 85% of the community telling me, saying, we, we, we with you, we hear you, we understand exactly, and we believe what you're saying. This is how we feel too. But so many people are not in positions like I am. They can't speak their mind because they might get canceled. They might lose their job. They might lose their situation. I ain't gonna lose my situation. When the pandemic first hit, I invested $8,000 into uh, Moderna. I am good like a motherfucker. <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean to say that. I am good like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> That that is uh, a ridiculously good investment. Uh, I I wish I did the same. So it was, um, was fifty six dollars when I started. When I pulled my money out, it was three hundred and forty three dollars per share. Sheesh! <laughs> wow, <laughs> an amazing Can investment. Wow, you're, cancel you're really your cancel it. your mama. <laughs> Um, so you're also working on the podcast Laugh and Learn, right? So could, yes, can with you my tell partner me? Lauren Hogan, you want my co-host Lauren Hogan. Uh, you want me to tell you about the podcast? So last yeah, tell year, me. the first year, so the first year we started, I had a different partner, my friend Nick Smith. We are still very good friends, and uh, it just he he went a different direction, and I was going a different direction. So Lauren, who I met through AHF, who put me on the burlesque campaign and hired me right off, just I loved her. I loved her business mind i loved her business savvy and we were on the road doing the tour for the burlesque campaign i think we did six cities she made sure as a star that i was taken care of i love people who take care of me because nobody takes care of me and uh I, I i hired as a manager right off and so when the pandemic hit nick couldn't come all the time because of restrictions so lauren sat in his seat and it just fit and we just had a great relationship since then so the first year we did all politics i am over politics we're doing a little <laughs> more hot topics was with politics and a little more hodgepodge because it was just draining. Politics is so draining. Yeah, I know. It can be really draining. So what are you looking forward to most with the podcast? What do you look like topics are you looking to cover? Um, what are you most excited about? Well, I just did, an, I just did a conversation because I don't interview. I conversate with people because interviewing puts you on high alert. 
conversating makes people like what we're doing. We, it's easy to talk to when you conversate. I just had a conversation with Macy Gray last Sunday uh, because of the whole backlash that she received because her because of her statement, her opinion, which she's allowed. And um, I think that's what I want to do. I want to sit and have conversations with, with, and it don't always have to be negative. It don't always have to be because something went wrong in the news. But this is how you get to know people. This is how you mend the fences and, and bridge the gap. Just conversating with people. So what, how was your day? You know, what did you, as simple as what did you have for breakfast? And what are your plans for this evening? You know, what's next on your agenda? How are your children? You know, not, oh, so I saw you in the movie. Because we all publicly saw that. People want to know more. They want to know more of who you are as a person. And that's what I like to do. I like to conversate with people. And ask me questions. You can ask me, I'll ask you. That's fair. I'm a fair bitch. I mean, I'm a fair person. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I guess to, to, uh, to wrap things up, what do you think in, in, in doing like comedy and all of the entertaining that you've done, um, like, what do you think is like your biggest learning lesson from from all of your 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 years of experience? Oh my goodness! Which is what I tell all new comedians. And I say, Flame, you got any advice for any up and coming comedians? You got any advice for any comedian that's been in the game? Build great relationships and get as much stage time as you can. That's all it is. But you build because you might not make it, but like Tiffany made and came and got me. So build great relationships, even with people that are shitty, because there's some lot of people in the entertainment industry that are shitty. Deal with it. Tolerate it. Don't be dismissive or intrusive or, or nasty, because you never know who will pull you up. This game is not always about your talent anymore. This game is truly about who you know and who's going to give you an opportunity for somebody, for the world to see you. When that time comes that they can see you, you better show up and you better show out. That's what that stage stand will do for you. Show out. I love that. Did I, I, did I show out for you on Jay Randy? Yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate oh, I was you so much. <laughs> I was so fat on that. Every time I look at that, I'm like, oh, you're fat ass. <laughs> <laughs> you look great. I love, I love the dress. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Seidy, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Mickey McCalla, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Mena. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.